0: The Darklands podcast covers Pacific Northwest true crime and all that it entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you feel distressed, please use your judgment and stop listening or skip to another episode. An additional note, this episode involves sexual violence. I will not go into graphic or gratuitous details. I'll give you a heads up when we get to that portion of the episode so that you can make the best decision for yourself with regards to listening or skipping ahead. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Dark Murder in South Park, Isaiah Kalebou. This is Part 2 of a two-part episode. Please listen to Episode 4, Murder in South Park, Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper first. I want to begin this episode by again noting that Eli Sanders book, While the City Slept, a love lost to violence and a wake up call for mental health care in America is the main source for this story. Information can be found in the show notes for this episode. After the early morning violent sexual assault of Jennifer Hopper and her partner Teresa Butts, who he also murdered, Isaiah Calebu had fled into the night. Much of what we know of Isaiah comes from an extensive psychological report by Dr. Maria Limbris, a forensic psychiatrist from UCLA, whose report is the backbone of the sections of Eli Sanders' book that focuses on Isaiah. Isaiah's father was a refugee from Uganda. He fled the country when he was 23 years old, the same age Isaiah was when he committed his brutal crime. His father fled a war-torn country where he saw his own father gunned down by agents of Idi Amin, while others in his family were raped as part of the ruthless campaign of genocide. Isaiah's mother was herself a child of rape and had spent most of her childhood in the foster care system, where she experienced abuse at the hands of her care providers. Her own mother suffered from schizophrenia. When Isaiah's mother was 13, she was returned to her own mother's care, but it was not a good situation. Her mother proceeded to talk to her and treat her as an infant, and when Isaiah's mother was 16, she fled her home and became pregnant with her first child, Isaiah's older sister, Deborah. She was 20 years old when she met Isaiah's father at a party one summer in Seattle. She began dating the 27-year-old, and by winter, she was pregnant with their first child together, Isaiah. Isaiah's father wasn't around much for the first six years of his life. He was studying electrical engineering in California and lived there while his mother raised him and Deborah on her own. During this time, Isaiah's mother would be asked to identify the body of her own mother, who was found washed up on San Juan Island. It is unknown what the cause of death was. However, a significant portion of his mother's side of the family experienced serious mental health issues. After identifying her mother's body, Isaiah's mom sunk into a deep depression and eventually tried to commit suicide. Isaiah's paternal aunt, Rachel Calebu, would take him and his sister in while his mother recovered. Over the years, Rachel would serve as a port in the storm that was Isaiah and Deborah's home life. When Isaiah's father rejoined his family, Isaiah was six years old and had been used to being raised in a single parent home. The return of his father changed the family dynamics, plunging them deeper into dysfunction. Isaiah's parents finally married when he was seven years old, not long after the first time authorities responded to their home to arrest his father for domestic violence. His mother stated that this incident arose when Isaiah's father went to punish him by spanking him with a stick. His father confirmed the story, stating that Isaiah needed to be hit with a stick because he had bad manners. His mother did not pursue the charges, and his father was released and thus began a traumatic cycle of abuse in what Dr. Limbris would come to call, quote, a pattern of chronic severe marital conflict, end quote. Some of this conflict can be traced back to the cultural divide between Isaiah's father and mother. He was a refugee who had seen and lived through atrocities most of us can't even imagine. She knew she was a child of rape and had a rough upbringing in the foster care system. He was a devout Jehovah's Witness, a religion that had taken firm root in Uganda. His method of punishment for his children was along the lines of the biblical spare the rod, spoil the child, and he did not spare the rod, whether it came in the form of a belt, a broomstick, or a tree branch. After Isaiah's father returned to the family, his behavior at school began to change, and teachers noticed that this otherwise normal kid had begun to withdraw and become compliant. His family moved frequently for the first few years. His father was back, and Isaiah switched schools several times. In his many moves, several school personnel had expressed concerns to his parents using language that was code for a suspicion of ADD or ADHD. Isaiah was too active and couldn't settle down. These were concerns that were brushed off by his family. For one, they knew the kid was smart. He was a voracious reader of all things, from politics to science, even as a child. Second, his father did not believe in things like ADHD or depression or mental health issues. He was of the belief that these were character issues that one could push through if they just tried hard enough. Throughout these years, there would be more violence in the family. Isaiah's mother would show up at the ER five different times for quote-unquote accidental stab wounds, including one time where she claimed to have stabbed herself twice in the leg. She became suicidal again, struggling with how things were playing out at home. In an odd coincidence, Isaiah's mother began experiencing severe back trouble similar to what Jennifer Hopper's mother went through. She too would have surgeries that didn't work. She too would also go on to walk in a permanent stoop. And she would also be prescribed methadone. At school, teachers became more concerned for Isaiah. They tried to reach out again to his parents to express that they were worried that he had untreated ADD, which was causing him to become extremely frustrated at school. One teacher urged his parents to accept their help because she believed that if there wasn't an intervention in the near future, Isaiah, who was clearly bright and inquisitive, would turn off at school. His parents would again ignore these concerns. In middle school, Isaiah would be identified as learning disabled after taking assessments at school. His parents would be called in for a meeting where his mother would force him to write an apology letter to his teachers. The letter showed a young man who had no problems expressing himself linguistically and clearly in the same moment that he was asked to. It is not clear what happened in terms of his diagnosis after this event. All during this time, domestic violence was the norm in his home, with his mother taking the brunt of the abuse. His father would often go straight for her weakness, her bad back, which caused her to be stooped. He would sit on her and wrench her legs up, pull her into positions that exacerbated her already unbearable pain. Isaiah's father was also practicing what is known as coercive control, a form of domestic violence which goes beyond the physical. It can include humiliation and belittling, and in the case of Isaiah's family, it manifested as everything being in his father's name. His mother was not allowed to be on bank accounts, the house, or car titles, Her name was even removed as an emergency contact number at some of Isaiah's schools. Isaiah's father used discipline and religion to prevent Isaiah from, quote, turning out like his mother, end quote. When he was 12, his father put him in a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school in the far-flung Seattle suburbs, all because he caught Isaiah smoking. It was at this school that his mother was not listed as a contact for him. Rather, it was only his father and his father's sister Isaiah's aunt, Rachel Calebu. Boarding school was tough. Besides being separated from his family, Isaiah was only one of a handful of black students. He wanted to come home, but his father refused to let him. His mother and father went to marriage counseling, but it was futile, and Isaiah's father told the counselor that the two would either get divorced or one of them would end up dead. At some point in the middle of all of this, while Isaiah was home from boarding school, He asked his mother why she was so depressed all the time, and she disclosed to him that she had been violently raped at knife point shortly before meeting his father. Isaiah was 15. He met this news with rage and went and destroyed his bedroom. Isaiah's teen years would continue a cycle of him being moved to boarding schools and prolific domestic violence rocking his household with multiple police interventions. His aunt Rachel would jump in and provide a safe space for Isaiah and Deborah at various times, while his parents spiraled beyond control. Finally, when he was 17, his parents separated and divorce proceedings were initiated. Still, the police's social services intervened after another violent incident in which Isaiah's father ended up scratched and bloodied in an altercation with his mother. After interviews with all of the family members, Social workers recommended that Isaiah's father complete a domestic violence treatment program and a parenting course, and they also recommended counseling for his mother. The social worker noted that Isaiah should get counseling, too, as he was often the target of his father's abuse and needed some help processing his experience. Isaiah never received that help. The divorce dragged on while he turned 18. Officially an adult, He was no longer eligible for the family services afforded to his mother and younger siblings. He was also no longer allowed to have his say in family court with regards to a bitter custody battle between his parents. Isaiah started college during this time in Walla Walla, Washington, in the eastern part of the state, but quickly dropped out and tried to start again at a community college near his Aunt Rachel's house in Tacoma, Washington. He left after two terms and returned to live with his mother. Shortly after this, he was arrested for the petty crime of shoplifting two CDs from a Kmart. It was the first of many arrests for misdemeanor crimes. Isaiah was 19 years old and aimless, just trying to figure out what to do with his life while living in abject poverty, with a mom who was unable to work due to her back but was also rejected for disability relief payments, and a father who was reticent to pay child support for his children, which wouldn't have included Isaiah anyway since he was officially an adult. In addition, Isaiah's father refused to pay back due tuition to the final boarding school that Isaiah attended, so that school held his transcripts and wouldn't release them as he tried to access further education. 19 is also the first time that Isaiah would have a sort of mini-breakdown, the first sign there was a crack in his stoic demeanor in spite of the chaos that surrounded him. While on a shopping trip with his mother one day, Isaiah broke. He began sobbing violently and uncontrollably in the middle of the grocery store. He was unable to speak without stuttering, as he told his mom that he couldn't handle the pressure from his father and his aunt, that he had no options because he couldn't get his transcripts. It was like all of the years of holding back his emotions burst forth at once in the middle of a mundane trip to the store. And then, as quickly as it began, it was over. It was also in this period that Isaiah discovered a passion for flying. He enrolled in pilot school, educational training that didn't require him to provide his high school transcripts. Flight lessons were expensive, so Isaiah worked full-time and put all of his money towards lessons. He told his sister that when he flew, he felt free. He dreamt of traveling. He dreamt of amassing enough savings to build himself a house on an island where he could live alone. After a lifetime of tumultuousness, he just wanted some peace and solitude. So he put all of his efforts to achieving that goal. And then, during a routine physical for flight school, which included an eye exam, it was discovered that Isaiah was colorblind, something he had never known or been told before. And just like that, the dream that this young man, now in his early 20s, had for himself was irrevocably over. Mid to late teens and early 20s is the period when the onset of mental health conditions like bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, and schizoaffective disorder generally have their onset. It is no doubt a coincidence that the shattering of Isaiah's dream to become a pilot occurred shortly before he would begin to experience disordered and delusional thinking. It is impossible to say how things could have been different if Isaiah still had the ability to achieve that goal. The pharmaceutical treatments for these types of mental health issues have an array of side effects that can often result in individuals choosing not to take them. Things like mental fogginess, fatigue, weight gain, acne, and tardive dyskinesia, which is involuntary jerking or shaking, to name a few. Yet many people with these diagnoses fight through the side effects every day so that their symptoms are stabilized and others around them may not even know that they experience these issues. But Isaiah was a young man without a dream and without hope, a young man raised by his father to be strong, to be stoic, raised to believe that it was a sign of weakness to take medication or require help outside of prayer, that you can overcome adversity with sheer will. It is impossible to know if having something attainable, like a pilot's license, having that light at the end of the tunnel would have overcome all of the conditioning from his childhood so that he would have been more amenable to therapy and medication that may have helped him stabilize. He didn't, and he wouldn't, even with the intervention of the courts. In the period after discovering he would never become a pilot, Isaiah struggled to hold down menial jobs. He was an inconsistent worker, sometimes productive, sometimes not, not reliable for showing up on time. He smoked a lot of weed, and he began to have more interactions with the criminal justice system for unpaid fines, traffic violations, petty theft. His aunt Rachel would step in and help out as much as she could with getting him out of jail or throwing a few bucks his way to help out. This is also when Isaiah began to exhibit acute signs that he was devolving into a world marred by delusional thinking and extreme behavior. On one day, he would be seemingly fine. The next, he would call his sister with no provocation and begin screaming at her that she was a terrible mother and that he would be calling social services to have her children removed from her care. He would threaten to kill everyone at a towing yard where his car had been taken. He would stalk his sister at her place of work, roaming the parking lot of the Dollar Tree store she cashiered in with dead eyes and a knife in his hand. His mother and sister would try again and again to get him hospitalized for inpatient mental health treatment. But Isaiah was an adult and without being legally deemed to be a threat to himself and others, he could not be forced to get treatment. His behaviors would continue to escalate. He would tell his mom that he had a new place to live, and when she drove him and his belongings to the large home in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle, she discovered that it was actually a small business that was currently occupied. Isaiah walked in with his pit bull dog, his now constant companion, and started shouting that he was an African king and that he owned the place and that everyone there worked for him. He told people that they were fired as he rummaged through cupboards. He was removed by the police and taken to Harborview Medical Center, the same place his victim Jennifer Hopper would be taken with life-threatening injuries after he murdered her fiance. This incident occurred in 2008, the same year Washington State closed the largest public psychiatric ward in the state. This closure meant that people in desperate need of acute psychiatric care would be what Eli Sanders calls in his book, quote unquote, boarded in emergency rooms at hospitals like Harborview. Boarded, meaning that they were tied to gurneys in the hallways while waiting for commitment. If Isaiah was boarded at this time, it wasn't for long. He was able to present himself in such a way to the psychiatric evaluator that his sister said the doctor called her and acted like she was the one who was crazy, even as she begged him to keep Isaiah for further evaluation. While Isaiah was released, he was also referred to a designated mental health professional, or DMHP, who determined that while he did not meet the criteria for danger to self and others, he should be taking medication for his inability to control his behavior. He would return to the business on Capitol Hill and be scared off by the police. His mother would demand that he would take his medication or go find somewhere else to live. This escalated things to the point that Isaiah told his mother that he was dead to her and then threatened to end her time on earth. She picked up scissors to defend herself, and after telling his mother that she was no match for him, he sauntered off with his dog in tow. His mother and sister were concerned enough that they called his father and told him where they believed that he would be heading. To the Berrien Transit Center. When his father caught up with him, Isaiah told him that the family had turned their back on him and they would never see him again. This wasn't true. He showed up the next day at his mother's house, enraged and uncontrollable, with blank eyes. He smashed the windows of her car, the first thing she had ever owned in her name since marrying his father. The police came but couldn't find him. He was en route to his sister's, where he arrived and threw a rock through the window. He was threatening his sister with his dog's leash, which he swung around like a chain. His mom showed up, and the physical altercation that ensued was a knot of limbs and bodies rolling around on the ground, with Isaiah literally foaming at the mouth while his sister tried to hold him and tell him that she loved him. What she had seen, the dead eyes and the frothing mouth, shook her to the core. Isaiah would be taken to jail, Debra tried to call the doctor who had done a psychiatric evaluation at Harborview, but he wouldn't take her calls. She was irate. She was lost. The family became hopeless. Deep inside, they knew that something terrible was going to happen, that it was going to take some irrevocable act of violence before anything was done to help their brother, their son. What would come next is a mind-boggling series of events I'll try to summarize, because it's a lot to try to untangle what happens when someone with mental health issues is now ensconced in the legal system. Basically, Isaiah would begin going back and forth between the courts and mental health hospitals. First, he needed to be found competent to stand trial for his assault on his mother and sister. Since he wasn't competent, the hospitals would have to treat him until he was deemed able to participate in his trial. They would do this with medication, not combined with any kind of psychotherapy that may provide both insights into his mental health and coping strategies. Isaiah would try to kill himself while in a holding cell in between transit from the courts to the hospital. The hospital would say that he was bipolar and put him on an antipsychotic, which did nothing for him. Then they switched him to lithium, which made him slow way down, but did nothing to stop his grandiose thinking. Still, it was enough that his emotional state was muted and he was deemed competent to stand trial. He was released on his own recognizance with the caveats that he couldn't drink or use drugs, that he sought treatment at a community mental health center, and that he had no contact with his mother or sister. If you've ever loved someone who experiences severe mental health issues to the point that they end up involved with the justice system, these events probably are tragically familiar. The courts make mental health care a stipulation of release or parole or probation, and the person doesn't follow through for any number of reasons. This care is not free, especially if you don't have insurance, nor are the medications prescribed. Community mental health care workers have tremendous caseloads. They are underpaid and overtaxed with caring for those that the mental health and health care social safety nets have egregiously failed. In the middle of responding to critical patients and critical situations over and over again, they're supposed to find the time to report to the courts for every single person that may be mandated to their services. These reports then have to make it to the prosecutor's office and to the sentencing judge and then something needs to happen. What that something probably is is an arrest warrant for a person in mental distress. It is an insane system and for those of us that love someone and meshed in it, We wait and watch and hope for some kind of divine intervention where a loved one suddenly recognizes that they need mental health care before something terrible happens, or that the entire social services and criminal justice systems are radically changed overnight to address these impossible situations. It is endless, heartbreaking, and so entirely common that we roll our eyes the next time our loved one is in trouble and mental health care is mandated as part of a plan. This is exactly the kind of purgatory Isaiah's family found themselves in. He showed up once or twice to the community health care provider. He did not stay on his medication. He was not connected to and did not receive any meaningful treatment for his chronic mental illness. He stayed with his aunt, Rachel, during this time. He would have periods of relative calm and the ability to present rationally when he attended court dates related to the assaults and threats against his mom and sister. But then he would begin to escalate in behavior. His aunt would call social services and report that he was not taking his meds, but he could present himself in such a way that it would be his aunt who seemed to be deluded. Social services would not find a reason to detain him for non-compliance with his release plan. Eventually, police would respond to a report of Isaiah being agitated in a public park, where his pit bull was roaming off leash in an area that required leashes. He was ranting and had a golf club along with the leash that he had swung at his sister and his mother. The police asked for his ID and he refused. He continued to refuse all orders to drop the golf club and the leash and to calm down. The officers tased him twice and shot him with beanbag rounds before they were able to subdue him. He was charged with resisting arrest and obstructing justice. For these charges, Isaiah would be arraigned in front of a judge that was not familiar with his open case in another court in Seattle. The presiding judge was dependent on an antiquated computer system that did not have the ability to pull up Isaiah's current release status and the conditions that he was supposed to be abiding by while on release. So this judge was unable to see that this incident was one of many that were increasing in frequency and concerning behavior. All this judge saw before him was a quiet and well-spoken man with family support in the form of his aunt Rachel, who was with him in the courtroom he would be the second judge to release Isaiah on his own recognizance. This was Tuesday, June 30, 2009. In less than three weeks, Isaiah would break into the house in South Park and unleash a torrent of violence upon two women, sleeping beside one another, possibly dreaming of their wedding a little over two months away. Isaiah would serve six days in jail before his release because he had to take care of time owed for some old theft and marijuana charges. Then he was released to his aunt, Rachel. It took 48 hours for Rachel K. to come to the Pierce County Courthouse requesting a restraining order against her nephew. She petitioned the court to order Isaiah to take medication, to leave her property, and to return items that he had taken from her. She said he had both threatened and hit her. And with the issuing of the restraining order, Isaiah now had no one. His aunt, who had been there for him throughout his troubled childhood, and increasingly disintegrating adulthood had reached the limit so many before her had. She could no longer provide a home for a young man who was escalating in violence and disassociating from reality while maintaining her own safety. The next day, Isaiah's Aunt Rachel and her longtime roommate JJ were dead. Their house had been set alight in an act of arson. They never made it out. News footage of the scene would later catch Isaiah watching the response with a group of neighbors, calmly looking on at the home that he shared with his aunt, where he had taken shelter throughout his life. Police would question him, offer him mental health services, and absent evidence, they would let him go. In the time that followed, there would be evidence that J.J. may have been bludgeoned before the fire started. There was a golf club found in the wreckage near his body. Isaiah Calebu would never be charged in the death of his aunt and her roommate, JJ. Unaware that Isaiah had been kicked out of the house and had a restraining order taken out against him by the homeowner the day before the fire, the Red Cross gave Isaiah a hotel voucher because he had been displaced by the fire. He stayed in a cheap motel until the morning of July 13th, when he had to appear before his original judge in a pretrial hearing for the assault on his mother and sister. This time, the prosecutor had supplemental information for the judge, including Isaiah's run-ins with law enforcement since he had last been in this court, and the suspicion that he may have been involved in the fire that had killed his aunt and JJ. The prosecutor argued that this ramp-up in his actions pointed to Isaiah becoming more unstable. However, the prosecutor couldn't provide proof that Isaiah wasn't getting mental health treatment as ordered by the judge as a condition of his release. This is baffling, since there was presumably time to get this information prior to the pretrial hearing, but again, we are talking about a number of overtaxed systems with outdated technology having to work in concert with one another to provide up-to-date and accurate information. As a result, the trial judge ordered a review of Isaiah's case in three weeks, in which the court would require an update from Isaiah's non-existent mental health care provider. He was released pending this review. Teresa Butts, had five days to live. In that five days, Isaiah would show up at his father's office building and threaten him while behaving erratically. His father would call the police after Isaiah left, but they told him there was nothing they could do about it. And on the day before the murder, Isaiah would be in court again, where his defense attorney was petitioning to be removed from his case, citing fears for her own safety due to his behavior. She would prevail, and Isaiah would walk out of the courtroom. That night, he would try to steal a bike in between bus rides. The bike's owner saw him and called the police. The police responded, and Isaiah eventually admitted that he did try to steal the bike. He was issued a citation, and then he climbed back on the bus with his dog and nowhere to go. And so they wandered a man, his dog, and his deteriorating mind until he found himself outside the open window of the Little Red House in South Park. As Teresa's body lay in the street and Jennifer was being rushed to the hospital, the hunt for the then unknown assailant was on. Scent dogs had lost his trail by the freeway Law enforcement circulated a sketch created from Jennifer's memory as they tried to placate an understandably anxious community. At the same time, they were running DNA and fingerprints from the scene to try to see if the perpetrator was already known to them. They got a hit on the DNA as that matching an unsolved break-in in a Seattle suburb from the year before. In that case, they had surveillance video of the suspect, which they quickly released to the public. And then, on the day that Teresa Butts was being buried, They received a call from isaiah's mother she recognized her son and the dog he took everywhere with him the same morning officers had responded to a call from a public transit driver who had tried to kick an unruly rider and his dog off the bus police responded and got the man's name and made him disembark one of those officers also saw the video and called it in because it had only been a few hours police were able to release a beyond the lookout or bolo and had some idea of the area that the man might be in. Within a few minutes, police spotted Isaiah and his dog nearby in an area called Magnuson Park. He was arrested and taken in without incident. In fact, arresting officers found him to be quote unquote, very respectful, even apologizing for the fact that he smelled bad. Isaiah was 23 years old. It would take nearly two years for Isaiah to go to trial. This was time spent with the justice system tied up in knots trying to figure out the best way to deal with the severe and persistent mental illness that impacted him. He would try to fire his public defenders on numerous occasions. Disputes would erupt between the various mental health care providers that had seen him, some diagnosing him with bipolar NOS, or not otherwise specified, while others, namely the doctors from the jail where he had been treated, claimed that he wasn't suffering from a mental illness at all. Finally, Isaiah would end up in a bizarre legal space in which he was determined to be too mentally ill to be executed, but not mentally ill enough that he wasn't competent to stand trial. Bipolar disorder can often cycle, and a person experiencing can occupy various states from being calm to showing mania at unpredictable times. Questions were raised about whether Isaiah, who could appear as a totally different person from one hearing to the next, was malingering or faking the severity of his illness. In the pretrial hearings, Isaiah frequently disrupted proceedings, trying to take control of the courtroom. He couldn't stand being talked about, and it especially grated when he was called mentally ill. He would try to engage in verbal combat with the judge. He would claim his food was being poisoned in the prison and that his books were being taken away from him so that he couldn't participate in his own defense. The presiding judge, Judge Hayden, was in a predicament where he believed that Isaiah had a severe mental health disorder, but he could not legally force him to take medication that might help stabilize him. Furthermore, jail doctors were claiming that Isaiah did not have bipolar disorder. Even when there were times of agreement among court and jail staff that Isaiah needed medication, he would exercise his right to refuse. He would sometimes arrive in court in a suicide smock, strapped to a chair with a special headpiece to keep him from spitting, biting, or attacking anyone. It took a while to seat a jury. Many candidates were expressing their concerns that they would not be able to handle the gruesome details of the crime. Eventually 16 jurors were impaneled, 12 mains and four alternates, and court proceedings moved ahead. Despite the madness leading up to the trial, the actual proceedings were relatively calm with reports by witnesses, the police, family, and mental health care professionals all on display. There was a point when Isaiah was removed from the courtroom and forced to watch testimonies from another room due to his verbal outbursts. The trial was also soul-wrenching, as Jennifer Hopper was forced to relive every second of the night that destroyed her life as she knew it in vivid detail. Much of this was covered in Episode 4, so I will not recount it. However, in the next two minutes, I will describe a particularly galling exchange between the defense attorney and Jennifer if you want to skip ahead. When Isaiah's defense attorney began to question Jennifer, it seemed like he was trying to somehow make the case that, I I don't know what, things could have been worse. He literally told Jennifer that even though she had been through some, quote, hard actions, end quote, his client did have moments where he wasn't entirely callous towards Jennifer and Teresa. He noted that there were times during the multiple rapes that Isaiah patted and stroked her and Teresa, and that he even let Teresa get water at one point. Jennifer was having none of it. She stated that the only reason he gave Teresa water was so that she could continue being orally raped by the defendant and that the patting and stroking during the rape was possibly the worst part of the whole sexual assault. The defense attorney quickly moved on. Despite advice from his counsel... Isaiah took the stand in his own defense, but only after being denied his request to wear a judge's robe during his testimony and to testify in dialogue rather than by question and answer. Also denied was his attorney's attempt to have another competency hearing for his client. Isaiah's testimony was brief. He said he attacked Jennifer and Teresa because he had been instructed by God to kill his enemies. So he did. He made statements that he had been diagnosed as mentally ill in the past. But these were stricken from the record. He was not cross-examined. He returned to his seat, where jurors noticed that his attorney made a sudden motion pushing away from the table. Isaiah had gotten loose from one of his restraint mittens. He was quickly secured again and removed from the courtroom, where he again had to watch the events from another location. On Friday, July 1st, 2011, almost exactly two years from the attacks, the jury returned their verdict Isaiah was found guilty of aggravated premeditated murder in the first degree of Teresa Botts, the aggravating factor being that he killed in the furtherance of the first-degree rape that he was also convicted of against her. He was also found guilty of first-degree rape, first-degree attempted murder, and first-degree premeditated attempted murder of Jennifer Hopper, in addition to a burglary charge for entering the house through an open window. A month later, Isaiah would sit in the same courtroom for the sentencing phase of his trial. He would hear from members of Teresa's family and from Jennifer about the impact of his crimes and what he had taken from them. What he would not hear from them was rage and wishes for the same kind of pain and agony that he had inflicted. Rather, one person after another would express that they prayed for him and that they hoped he would find peace. Isaiah chose not to speak during the time allotted for him. Judge Hayden issued his own statement about the terrible crimes, the resilience that Jennifer Hopper had shown, and also his sadness that the mental illness that Isaiah experienced was not able to be treated in a way that would have prevented the whole thing from happening. He turned to Jennifer to express that he had recently attended a same-sex wedding much like the one that Jennifer and Teresa never got to have, and that he hoped that the laws in Washington where it was still illegal to get married to a same-sex partner, would change in her lifetime so that she could have the chance to experience it with someone in the future. This set Isaiah off on a rant about God and gay marriage and Muslim polygamous and Sharia law. Judge Hayden reminded Isaiah that he had given up his right to speak, and then he went on to deliver his sentence. Life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional two life sentences as a symbolic gesture. Isaiah Kalebou was 26 years old. Absent some unimaginable circumstance, he will die in prison. At Isaiah's sentencing, Jennifer Hopper was able to address Isaiah directly with a victim's impact statement that shows what an amazing and resilient human being she is. She stated that she knew there wasn't anything she could say to Isaiah that she hadn't already said. After all, both she and Teresa had literally begged him for their lives, and it didn't have any effect then, and so she couldn't imagine finding something to say now that would have an effect on him. Instead, she told him that she did not hate him, that she was sorry for whatever things in his life shaped who he had become, and that she hoped he would find peace. And then she spoke of who she had become in the time since the assault and murder, stating, I wish I could say to you that I have not been broken, that pieces of me are, and will always be, but I will fight every day of my life to be as whole as I can. That I promise you, and I promise everyone here. But I wish you no harm. I never wanted you put to death. I don't seek revenge. I don't want anything bad to happen to you in prison, nothing. I wish you peace every last day of your life. That is all I have to say. Jennifer has lived that promise, and in her fight to be whole, She has fought to protect others and to train police how to better respond to victims of sexual violence. She speaks about resilience to first responders. She also began performing musically again, and 10 years after the attack, she performed a fundraiser called Songs That Got Us Through for the nonprofit The Angel Band Project, which was founded by two of Teresa's childhood friends. The Angel Band Project provides music therapy for victims of sexual and domestic violence. If you're interested in seeing a video of Jennifer performing, I've included a link in the show notes, as well as a link to an interview with Eli Sanders and Jennifer Hopper as part of Town Hall Seattle that you can also listen to. Jennifer Hopper continues to live, to thrive, to perform, and to support victims of sexual violence in Seattle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Darklands. Darklands is a to Pants production. If you have comments or suggestions for Pacific Northwest true crime cases we should cover, please email darklandspodcast at gmail.com. A starred review on whichever platform you hear this show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, be well and stay safe.